Good, so good to see you. Um, you know, when siblings get back together, they uh, sometimes recreate old photos from their childhood. Have you seen any of these things? Uh, let me just show you a few. These are some of my favorites of recreated childhood photos. <laughs> that is just... These guys actually are very funny. I'm sure their parents are very proud. They've done many photos together. They've got a whole internet website. Um, here's another one. <laughs> Love that. The cutest little kid. Look at her eyes. That's amazing. Yeah. And this, this may be my favorite. Three cute little boys in the toy box. They dug it out of the attic, got back in it, and the toy box explodes. That's awesome. And then this is just disturbing. Um, those are hilarious. Aren't they? They're also really creepy. Why, why are those somewhat disturbing? It's because what is wonderful for children is not necessarily best for a grown-up. As we say in your notes, look in your notes, maturity should look different than childishness. Maturity should look different than childishness. I bring that up because today we start Titus chapter 2. And Titus is commissioned by God to teach a whole new measure of maturity to all the people in the churches on the huge island of, of Crete. Now, based on what the people of Crete wrote and what others wrote about them, maturity in the first century Cretan mind was pretty far afield from the ideas of maturity found in Scripture. Uh, to the Cretans, maturity was marked by these factors. Look at the slide. Here's what these people thought made for a successful grown-up life. Sustaining multiple wives and concubines, or if you were female, being recognized as a number one wife. That was true maturity. Drinking all you can. Okay, that was big to them. Engaging in a little piracy. It was a huge thing on Crete. Now, not enough piracy that Rome would notice. Rome was, was very much against piracy, but just enough to make a little money on the side. Many of the people on that island were Roman citizens. For them, a big deal was to curry favor with the governor. Every year the Senate sent a new governor to the island. You curried favor with him so that you could make more profits for your business. And then this was very important to them, changing political parties quickly so you could always make sure you were on the winning side. All right? Now, look at that list and may ask you something. Is that list very different from maturity as understood in the 21st century American mind? No, it is not. We use the words adult and mature for X-rated crap, for unbelievable childish nonsense. We talk about and partake of alcohol all the time. And I'm talking about Christians. We, we consider cheating just a natural part of, of how you grow up and learn to be a good business person. We, watch this. Every time there's a new presidential administration, watch all the businesses, all the large corporations line up to, to give money to and support the candidate they think is going to win, and you will see we have not changed very much from Crete at all. In fact, for our flip-flops, we use the term the winning side of history now, all the time. It's the same. The point is, we today are Cretans, not Cretans, although that likely fits as well. Um, we are warped in our understanding of what it means to be grown-up, wise, and mature. We are a culture of lost boys trapped in an immature neverland. A friend of mine sent me a great note about this. She wrote me and said, Wayne, looking at Titus chapter 2 reminds me that many people opt for a Peter Pan existence not knowing it makes them unfit for servant leadership. They want to be buddies instead of bosses or parents. All the while, their employees and children wander around looking for a leader. We must choose to grow up and grow up the right way. God's people said, 
Amen. To reverse that lost culture within us and grow up rightly, let's go to God's Word. All right? Please turn in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. Let's read verses 1 and 2. All right? Titus, first two verses of chapter 2. But you, Paul says to Titus, must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. In your notes, you'll see our first takeaway. Real maturity is founded in sound teaching. That's the point in verse 1. Paul's teaching the Cretans and all of us how to grow up rightly. And the first idea is the last thing he mentioned in his previous paragraph, sound teaching. I think some other translations do a better job of showing the cause and effect that is very likely intended in the Greek text. Um, look, for example, the King, uh, New King James Version. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, colon, that the older men, dot, 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 and then it goes through the rest of the passage, and later the older women. All right? The point is, when Titus teaches truth, the things fitting for sound doctrine, the older men and the older women grow in maturity. They become the mature people God intends all of us to be. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team is pretty handy with the original biblical languages. He sent me this tidy summary. Uh, this is well said. Martin said, Wayne, the, the point then, he's talking about the, the Greek text. He said, the point then becomes that maturity is tied to sound teaching. And there seems to be a side point. Those that are mature must not rest in their knowledge. They must continue to learn and seek instruction, especially from Scripture, close quote. And that, my friends, that's a problem especially for many of you, many of you folks at Frisco Bible, you see, you already know it all, or at least you think you do. Guys, you have been blessed to be in a community where learning from the Bible is highly exalted. You have been endowed, wonderfully blessed, with very serious, hardworking theologians all throughout your midst, people who are determined to teach the truth. And that's wonderful, but... As wonderful as that is, it can also be a problem because when you have all that blessing, it's very easy to stop growing because you've been there and done that. You've learned it all before. Way back when I was a youth pastor, we called this the curse of the Christian school. The, uh, the kid who was blessed to go to a wonderful Christian school would come to our youth group and he would come with a very supercilious attitude because he already knew everything from his Bible class at school. The Bible became dead and flat to those kids instead of living and active. Please don't misunderstand. Christian schools are great. I founded one. I believe in them. But every form of education has its weaknesses, and that is the great weakness of Christian schooling. And by the way, it is the great weakness of great teaching churches. As great as they are, they can create jaundiced people who look at the Bible and stop learning. Don't let that be you. Now, verse 2 describes how we're to live out this sound teaching, what it looks like in practice. Maturity is lived out in men who are level-headed. The Greek word uh, nephalios is what we translate level-headed. It's a word used very widely in Greek language history. Here's what it is. It refers to all of the influences which can unbalance the human mind. Okay, addictions, worries, grief, alcohol, drugs, etc., etc. Ancient Greek uh, writer Epicharmus uh, of course, we don't have many of his writings, only fragments. We don't have any complete pieces. But from what we have, he was apparently brilliant and really funny. And uh, Epicharmus uh, comes up and he says, um, he, he says, Nephalios is an unequivocal and immediately self-evident antithesis to all kinds of mental fuzziness. Isn't that awesome? Listen to that. This is what it means to be level-headed. Unequivocal, immediately self-evident antithesis to all kinds of mental fuzziness. 
brilliantly said. The reason it's so hard to practice nephalios is everybody thinks. You do. I do too. We all think that we are level-headed. Everybody thinks they are sober-minded, thinking clearly. But folks, at any given time, there are very, very few people who are truly nephalios. Very few. Which explains why we struggle with the next trait in verse 2. Look at the next one. Worthy of respect. The ESV may be better saying dignified. The, the Greek word, my Bible translates worthy of respect, is very, very significant. It's semnos. It is a term used of men and women in the Bible. It originally described, here's what semnos originally described, how people are supposed to respond to deity. Okay, this is your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. You get to learn a Greek word, semnos, really important word. Let's all say it together on the count of three, semnos. One, two, three, semnos. Very good. The semnos person treats honorable things honorably. Okay? Semnos describes an inner attitude of respect and gravitas. Um, th this is a person who respects what is good, and thus they command respect from others. All right? Um, tell Tell me the name. I want everybody, everybody right now, think of the name of someone you know, someone who is, who is semnos. They are worthy of respect. They are, they are dignified. Uh, not their position, not their office, but they themselves are inherently worthy of respect. Raise your hand. Let me hear just anybody you know who is semnos. Yes. Shannon Behrman. Very much. I concur. How about in this section? Give me somebody from here. So, yes. Paige Mercer. Very cool. Who would you say, bud? Yeah, you would say her. That's pretty nice. Your aunt, I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, who's semnos, dignified, worthy respect? Who do you know? Yeah. Your dad. Well said. And not just because he's here. He would say that anyway. Yeah, that's right. Um, now think about, every one of you thought of somebody, or at least you went through the Rolodex in your mind trying to think of someone. Why did you think of the person of whom you thought? I would contend that it is because that person, among all of their great qualities, is level-headed. He or she is nephalios. I also imagine your person was semnos. He or she treats honorable things honorably. But what I want you to see is the two ideas are connected. We don't think of someone as worthy of respect if that person cannot stay sober, right? We, we don't think of a person as respectable when they're tweeting out of anger and fear and imbalance. Hilariously, people in our age demand respect. And yet this may be one of the most crooked thinking generations to come along in a long time. We show very little honor toward honorable things. Here's America today, actually most of the West today. We demand to ride the big roller coaster without being big enough to handle it. And that's why the grudging respect that is granted by a society cowering under political correctness always rings untrue. Better to earn respect by being level-headed, being dignified, and being sensible. Sensibility is a really important aspect of maturity. It means the ability to think is constantly being developed, especially that the person has, has developed some ability to, to control their thoughts. Now, speaking of thoughts, I know what you're very likely thinking. We get to this sensibility, our third trait here, and you're saying to yourself in your favorite um, uh, trade federation voice, you're saying, well, Mr. Jedi, why don't you tell us practically what to do with trade federation? Yes, Thank you so much for asking. Uh, okay, I will. You, you, you want to be more sensible? Here's what you can do. Turn off all screens during supper. On a regular basis, actually talk around your dinner table. If you live alone... Turn off the TV, read, think, 
or invite somebody over to share the meal with you. If you eat with others, institute a strict no-screen policy during table time. Heather uh, Wilhelm recently wrote about this wonderful article. She said this, imagine a crowded restaurant, glasses clink, conversations buzz. You're ushered to your seat. You take a nonchalant glance around, and then after the inevitable subtle double-take, there he is, the astronaut at the next table. I'm not talking about a real astronaut, of course, but a digital traveler, one of those small or often not-so-small children, constantly plugged in and tuned out, floating somewhere in cyberspace. While it sounds otherworldly, the astronaut at dinner is becoming increasingly common. In fact, I sat next to one at a restaurant on Monday night. He was maybe 10 or 11. His parents chatted. Meanwhile, he was oblivious, glazed eyes, glued to an iPad. Over the span of the next hour, a wild-eyed, snorting buffalo herd could have charged out of the kitchen, followed by the entire cheery-faced UCLA band, followed by the original cast of Hamilton doing self-important backflips, and our resident child astronaut would neither have noticed nor batted an eye. She goes on. Nothing that exciting was happening, of course, just family dinner which is quietly one of the more important regularly scheduled learning opportunities for a child. Dinner is where kids learn the arts of patience, self-control, manners, and conversation, things that cannot be learned while staring at a screen. She closes with this. Here's a fun and somewhat alarming test. Go to a restaurant with kids who can make eye contact, order for themselves, say please and thank you, and, and witness the gushing compliments you'll get from astounded waiters and waitresses. These basic skills should not be considered an amazing and unusual feat, but today they certainly seem to be. Heather Wilhelm from her article, Deliver Us from iPads. Folks, there's a reason that Steve Jobs and Bill Gates banned all screens from their dinner tables. Do you know that? No screens allowed at their dinner tables because they wanted to discuss history and thought and sensibility. I suggest we all do the same. Turn off the screens for a set time and think instead. Be sensible. I, I know it's hard. Especially as a parent, I know it's really hard. We all know that it is easier to let a screen babysit and induce quiet. And, and that's okay sometimes. But what if we don't set boundaries? If we don't set any boundaries, that kid learns to be insensate instead of sensible. He learns to be quietly entertained instead of learning to think. We need to grow up. Do you want to grow up? Yes or no? Do you want to grow up? All right. Then become ever more sensible. How does one do that? As a start, turn off your phone. Turn off your iPad. Turn off your tablet and your television. You asked. Uh, the last way. God says maturity fleshes out is men becoming sound in faith, love, and endurance. Uh, this is tough. There's only one way to develop sound faith, and that's to have it tested. When I go through periods of, oh, we went too far. When I go through periods of doubt and dismay, those times must be appreciated as a very particular kind of blessing. You see, it's in those times of doubt and wrestling with God that I am humbled the most. That's, that's when the Lord meets me in my faithlessness and he answers my cry to him, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Sound faith is built by doubt. Same thing's true of love. To be sound in love doesn't mean you've got a perfect family where never is heard a discouraging word. That's easy. Sound love is developed when we learn how to love the unlovable. I have probably learned the most about sound love from a friend of mine. This person is married to a very sour, mentally ill spouse. And yet, and yet, the love that God grants just flows into and quite frankly flows out of that family. That's sound love. 
course, all that takes endurance, right? Look at your text. It's instructive that Paul specifically mentions endurance in his list of things to look for in maturing males. Because in my experience, females are usually better at endurance than men are. I want you to forgive me, please. I'm going to make a very gross exaggeration, okay? Gross exaggeration, but in general, it seems to me women are better at this than men. A woman who has a ruptured spleen will confess that she feels slightly uncomfortable, right? Whereas a man who has nothing but a head cold will tell anyone who will listen that he is dying, right? At least that's been my experience. All of us, especially the men, need to be sound of endurance if we're going to grow upright. Here's how you can picture this. When you go to the beach party that our church does every year, next time you go, watch the lazy river. Okay, just, just watch people floating down the lazy river. Lazy rivers are wonderful, but they're also a perfect picture of immaturity, just going with the flow, no resistance, no endurance. So look at this. Look, guys who, exhibit, guys who mature exhibit these traits, right? They are level-headed. They are dignified, semnos, worthy of respect. They are sensible and sound in love, faith, and endurance. Just tell me, in that biblical list, do you see grumpy anywhere? Do you see grumpy anywhere on that list, yes or no? No, you don't. How about resentful? How about out of touch? The biblical list, do you see withdrawn from society? No. You know why? Because those are the traits you see in men who just grow old instead of growing up. Dudes, listen to me. You better decide right now who you want to be and start taking steps to get there. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen? You're just going to float downstream with all the other grumpy old men. And girls, you are not let off the hook either. You, of course, need continual improvement as well. Go to verse 3. Verse 3 through 5. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. You'll see on the right side of your notes, maturity is lived out in women who are reverent. Actually, the original text reads reverent behavior. This is incredibly cool, incredibly cool. The word for behavior, katastema, is a term specifically used for behavior before other people. Behavior lived out before other people. It's it's your demeanor in front of others. That's coupled with reverent, a a word that in the English and the Greek carries the same meaning. And in each language, it's a word that comes from from worship, okay? So so put them together in this rare combination— and, and what do you have? You have a person who acts before others the same way she is with God. She worships the Lord with her whole life. Her work, her friendships, all of it is lived as worship before the God who loves her. Reverent behavior doesn't mean that she preaches all the time. It means all of her life is an extension of her identity she has in Jesus Christ. How great is that? And I should point out that many of you are like that. You are very comfortable in your Christian identity, and it's, quite frankly, it's just beautiful. But even you, even the most beautiful among you, need to mature more in this area because, let's be honest, not everything we do is Christ-focused, is it? Yes or no? Is it? No, it's not. So let's, let's grow up rightly, and let's start being reverent in all of our behavior. Amen? Next, God says maturity should show um, in those who are not slanderers. That's how you know they're mature. They're not slanderers. Ouch. Again, I think it's really intriguing to see where these terms are placed. I want you to forgive another grotesque exaggeration, okay? But it, it seems to me that females throughout history, throughout history may have struggled with this more than males. 
I think, I think it begins on childhood playgrounds. You see, on a childhood playground, when boys get mad at each other and disagree, they wrestle and fight it out, which usually that catharsis causes them to become friends. I know it sounds weird to some of you girls, but some of a man's best friends are the people he exchanged punches with. It, it, it's a fascinating, amazing part of life. It's cathartic. But we don't let little girls fight. You see, that's not, we don't let them do that. So they learn to fight with words instead, right? And in our day and age, we don't let anybody wrestle or fight. And so it is possible, I think, that by stopping all little kid wrestling matches, we're just reinforcing the human tendency to slander. And this is universal. Men, men are just as slanderous, especially in our instant communication age. If you want to mature, listen, you want to mature, stop talking about other people. Find a very private place with no phones and no recording devices and just fight instead, okay? Next, verse 3 tells us not to be addicted to alcohol. I don't think I've ever read anything that explains this verse better than a blog post I want to read you. It's from a lady in Britain named Sarah Bessie, okay? Sarah says this, I had great reasonings about social drinking and moderation and our freedom in Christ. I grew to love the imagery of wine in Scripture, to see it as an emblem of the new city and heavenly banquets. I like the sophistication of wine, the theology of wine, the metaphor of wine, the, the community around wine at the table. Without noticing, I was drinking almost every night now. Didn't bother me in the least. But I have learned that when you're walking with Jesus, the Holy Spirit's always up to something. I'm grateful, always grateful, how the Spirit isn't harsh or overwhelming, but rather how at the right time and in the right moment, we know it's time to change. That we begin to sense that this thing that used to be okay is no longer okay. The thing that used to mean freedom has become bondage. The thing that used to sing, signal joy has become a possibility of sorrow. The thing that used to mean nothing has become something or perhaps everything. Or at least that's what happens to me, says Sarah. It was fine. Everything was fine, and then I knew it wasn't going to be fine much longer because a year ago, I knew God wanted me to stop drinking. I began to be haunted by the writer of Hebrews who said, and she quotes here Hebrews chapter 12, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. I began to wonder why I was resisting throwing off the weight of alcohol, why I was so determined to keep running my race with this habit that had begun to feel so heavy. In my soul, I could see the Holy Spirit practically jogging alongside me to say every now and again, aren't you ready to put that heavy weight down yet? I think, I think it's time you stop this one. It's your time to put it down. Looks like it's getting heavier the longer you hold on. No, no, I'm fine. I'll just keep going like this. Everyone else does. It's fine. We're all fine. I'm fine. Look at how fine we all are. Pant, pant. Maybe I'll just sit down on the side of the road for a while to catch my breath. Isn't that good writing? Now, now, Sarah eventually stopped drinking. She talks about how she thought it would be really hard, but it wasn't. It was actually a heavenly experience. She describes the aftermath. She says this, uh, my older children uh, asked me about it eventually. They said, Mom, you don't buy wine anymore, do you? And I said, no, I, I don't. They both smiled, and one of them said, good, I'm glad. I, I don't think it's good for you. I'm glad you're like Granny and Papa now, who are teetotalers. And Sarah said, me too. And then... She addressed every one of us who needs to quit drinking or who needs to set aside whatever habit weight it is that is weighing us down. She says this, listen, if it feels like a weight, imagine how free you'll be when you lay it down. If you're sensing this invitation, 
It's not an invitation to deprivation, but an invitation to abundance. Amen. The last aspect for women is teaching what is good. This teaching is to be done by older women. Older is probably misleading here. It is a form of, of a word for elder. Um, outside the Bible, this word is used for, almost always used for somebody who is over 50 years of age. But in the Bible, listen, this word for older never has anything to do with age. In the Bible, it's always used for character, not age. And so it's a more mature woman who is to teach a less mature woman. And the context, if you look at it, seems to be in, in small groups or one-on-one, okay, in groups or one-on-one. This is clearly one of the very few sexually determined roles in God's church. I'm sorry, but dudes are not to be discipling women, period. I would love to speak at women's retreats. They pay ridiculous amounts of money. They lavish their speakers with gifts. You know what they do? At women's retreats, they give the speaker her own private room. The last men's retreat I spoke at, I slept in a bunkhouse with 40 smelly dudes, every one of whom had serious sleep apnea problems, all right? But I, but I trust the Lord, and he makes it clear that that role is reserved for females. So be it. As equals before him, we are given very, very few boundaries. I can submit and I could forego something that I would like to do. I can forego teaching what is good to females. Now, that command to teach good is followed in the text by the list of the things that are good. So, so look at the catalog. Look what it includes. First is loving family. Uh, love husbands, love kids, love family. Love is a choice. And mature people choose to love their family. This is a serious problem today. I don't know if you've noticed, but whole cultures around the world have so warped the idea of love that it now includes absolutely no reproof. Places like Sweden and Italy and and huge swaths of the U.S., Solomon's wisdom has been completely forgotten. Read it with me. Solomon's wisdom, Proverbs 27, verse 6. Everybody together. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Very good. The people who love you speak truth to you. They even hurt you, not not abusively, but for good. The people who don't really care for you, you know what they do? They assuage their conscience by, by covering you with affection, by smothering you with money or gifts or things. Nothing has changed in 3,000 years since that was written. Just ask a child of divorce. Every child of divorce knows that the overly permissive parent, if there's one of the parents that's really overly permissive, that person actually is an enemy to the child. Is an enemy at least in the sense that he is more concerned with himself than he is for what is best for that child's development. Another Christian blogger, Tim Challies, he had a great great summary about loving family. Look what he said. This is the very thing Solomon addressed all those millennia ago. Discipline your children, you'll love them, and they'll love you. Neglect to discipline your children, you'll hate them, and they'll hate you. Spare the rod and spoil the child, sure, but spare the rod and you spoil the parent as well. Teach what is good about love and self-control. That's next. This is very important. However, I want to beg indulgence because we're going to skip this one for today. You see, Paul talks much more about self-control in a later section, so we're going to discuss it at length later. All right? Instead, let's jump down to purity. This particular word for purity appears very rarely in the Bible. The, the cool thing about it is this is an internal word, okay? The, 
This Greek word has nothing to do with ceremonial cleanliness or external issues. It's about cleanness of the heart. And that exposes one of the major differences, one of the most amazing differences between the Bible and all other world religions. All the rest are focused on the external. But it is the heart that matters. Real change only comes from the inside out as God's Word changes us. That's why one of the only other places this word is used in the Bible is in 1 John, where John describes what happens to us when we focus on Jesus' return. He, he purifies us internally when we focus on Him and the truth of His prophecy. More mature women also teach productivity in the home. Oikirgos is a really tough word to get into English. Um, there's no need to pick on the translators. It's just very hard to get into our language. My Bible says homemaker, but that can be really misleading. The idea is not connected with any career inside or outside the home. Oikirgos describes someone who is diligent to, to help, diligent to take care of the household. It has more to do with being emotionally rooted to a family than any particular job. I simply must brag on my wife in this regard. Uh, there are whole swaths of our extended family that rely on Jana to, to Oikirgos to fix things and put things together for them. Every time we go to Oklahoma to see my family, my extended family, every time, we have a list waiting for us of whose houses we need to go to because they have saved things to put together until Jana can arrive. All right? Now, now, my partner is blessed with a particularly great engineering mind. Not everyone has that, but the principle still applies. Jana's talents would be worthless if she didn't want to do that, if her heart wasn't set on her family, Oikirgos. Now, along with productivity, we also must exalt kindness. Listen carefully. You cannot be kind when you're focused on yourself. Recently, two pastors, uh, Tony Reinke and Matt Lance, they each reminded me about C.S. Lewis's little book that I'd read and forgotten about. It's called A Preface to Paradise Lost. It is an excellent introduction to the ideas in John Milton's brilliant classic, Paradise Lost. Uh, Lewis says this in his preface, to admire Satan in Paradise Lost is to give one's vote not only for a world of misery, but also a world of lies and propaganda, of wishful thinking, of, get these last two words, this is brilliant, incessant autobiography. Isn't that brilliant? Do you know what? When I someday write a history of the world, do you know what this age's chapter is going to be called? Incessant autobiography. This is our time. And I think that explains why the world has become so very unkind, why human society is so unkind, because it is so self-absorbed, incessant autobiography. Tony Reinke added this note. He said, Milton Satan is stuck. Everything he says is propaganda about himself. He has no hope of escaping the acid of his narcissism. He, he speaks only about himself. He loves only himself. He is focused only on himself, close quote. And that is the norm on this lost paradise of earth. If you want to grow up, you need to be kind. To be kind, you must fight our natural satanic self-focus. Final thing to be taught is submission to husbands. See that one in your list? This is also not natural. It's not natural. You see, when sin entered and paradise was lost in Genesis chapter 3, God observed this new trait in the wife. He said that her, she would desire her husband. 
The Hebrew experts tell me that, that this word desire, shukah, is really obscure and it's a really specific word choice. God has Moses use this word on purpose because it means literally to reach out for something, especially in order to control it. It's a word that is used in other Semitic languages of a lioness stalking her prey. Oh, here she comes. Watch out, boy, she'll chew you up. She's a man eater. What? Right? That's shukah. After sin, that's the new norm. And God shows his power, his amazing power, by teaching women in his redeemed community to reverse that. Look, his woman goes completely against that grain, and she submits to her equal partner. She willfully plays co-pilot navigator to her husband's pilot. This is what maturity does for men and women. Look, men who mature become level-headed and, and dignified, semnos, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. Women who mature become reverent and not slanderers and not addicted, teaching all the things that are good. Now, look at those lists. They're very similar, and they even overlap some. And yet, there are differences. They're slightly different. Why? Because boys and girls are different. I know that's a shocking bit of news in this day and age, but men and women are different. They are equal humans. But anyone who says that men and women are the same is twisting Scripture, willfully ignorant, and almost certainly selling something. All right? In the end, it all boils down to this. The very last phrase of this passage actually applies to the whole passage, to men and women. Look at the very last clause. So that God's message will not be slandered. You represent God. Here's the real bottom line for all of you Christians, older, younger, male, or female. When you don't grow up well, it reflects poorly on the one who has provided for you. His words are considered foolish and they're made fun of. By contrast, when you mature correctly, it reflects very well on the one who raised you up. With that in mind, I want you to consider some wisdom. I have some wisdom for you from some of the children in this redeemed community. Take a look. When you are little, you don't know as much as what you will learn when you get older. Calm and mellow. It, it means to be kind and, um, and not to be wiggly-wappy. Um, I think it means to do the right thing at all times. It means to have a lot of knowledge and to be like wiser in what you know. You can be held accountable for more responsibilities like being home alone without um, a sibling. Means, uh, you're like older, wiser, and smarter. I think being mature means making wise decisions without like needing help to guide you on the way. Mature parent gives their children bedtimes and helps them understand stuff. That would be kind and I would um, help people. I'll be more responsible. I'll be older. I'll be more wise. I guess I'll make better decisions than I'm making today. Trustworthy, dependable, and more responsible than you were when you were a kid because you have those, like you're older enough to know. Because if you don't act mature, then like for one, people might not trust you as much. Amen. Your children are a credit to you parents and to our church. Now let's be the same to our Heavenly Father. Pray with me, pray with me please. Father, I ask you to grow me up 
and to do the same for my brothers and sisters. I pray you love us enough to chastise us, as I know you do. I thank you that you love us so much that you support and encourage us. And Lord, I pray that we will, that we will move out of Neverland, that we will reform our thinking about maturity and we'll grow up. Father, if, if I don't grow up well, it's not that I get to stay Peter Pan. I'm going to become a pirate. It's inevitable. And I beg you to keep reforming my maturity and that of my brothers and sisters. Everything we do, even just starting today, the meals we will have, the homework we will do, the, the, uh, the, the, the fun we'll have, the, uh, the cheering for our sports team, the giving that we're about to do, let every aspect of that be part of maturing and delighting and enjoying life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.